0: Today we have a really special guest, one of Australia's most amazing Olympian, successful athletes of all time. We've got Anna Mears on the show. Anna, your career is phenomenal. Six Olympic medals, the only Olympian to medal at four consecutive games from Australia. You recovered from crazy challenges and setbacks like injuries and I think just the the story of resilience and the, the career that you you put together with both high performance leadership overcoming adversity and and then also your openness and sh- um, sharing of what that was like has just been a real inspiration for so many people and i um, very excited for this chat and I think just with with starting off what's that like in retirement when you look back on on that career and you probably get that introduction everywhere you go and speak do you ever get sick of it how does that make you feel
1: Oh, thank you. Um, No, I don't get sick of it, to be honest. Um, (laughs) I don't think you would. (laughs) I never get sick of it. Um, But the thing about that was um, it was a year before I retired. I went to a um, high school sports night here in Adelaide and it was the first time I'd actually heard myself introduced (laughs) in a tally format like that. And it blew my mind because I was always focusing on this, just that one next race, that one next medal, that one next competition to kind of hear it in a, in a holistic recap. I, I, I kind of sat there and gone, wow, I've ac- I have actually done some stuff. So, <laughs> yeah.
0: Some stuff definitely happened. Yeah. Uh, and, and when you, when, like we'll start sort of early on in the journey, you know, maybe even from the beginning, how do you get into the sport of cycling?
1: Um, well, I grew up in the country in a small town called Middlemount, and we had one of the best BMX tracks in the country. Awesome. Uh, my family were caretakers of that track. So I spent a lot of time mowing lawns, painting tires, you know, raking dirts, making jumps, all that sort of stuff. Um, but I really had to follow the lead of my older siblings because I'm the baby of four in our family and mum wouldn't take four kids to four different sports so whatever one my oldest sibling my brother Scott chose all of us um, girls underneath him had to follow him and that so happened in 1994 when um, my big brother and Tracy my big brother Scott and Tracy moved out of home it was just my closest sister Carrie and I we were watching the Commonwealth Games on TV in 1994 and for the first time we were witnessing track cycling we'd never seen track cycling before it was cool. It was fast. It was engaging, and uh, it sparked an interest. And we just asked our parents if we could have a go at track cycling. Um, they had no idea where they were going to find it because in Middlemount there was no club, there was no track cycling, and so they just looked up the yellow pages for the closest club, and that was in uh, Walkerston, Mackay, 300k roughly from where we lived. And that in 1994 they drove us in one weekend, and we fell in love with it. And you know, 20. Four years later, here I am now.
0: That's amazing. And, and like, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit later in the interview as well. Like, that family connection uh, that you had, and what, what sort of role did you, your parents play in terms of getting you to the sport early on and getting you into Yeah,
1: it was big, a big uh, commitment from them. And I remember um, a conversation we had with them at the dining table. You know, it was serious when you had to sit with mum and dad at the dining table for a conversation. And, um, you know, they, they said it was going to take big commitment from them for us to participate in this sport. It was expensive. I was only 11 at the time, so I probably didn't really comprehend the cost of it, but I knew, you know, the time the amount of hours that they were going to have to drive to get us to a velodrome. So they kind of just said to us, look, if, if you want to do this sport, you have to commit to it. You can't just do it for 12 months and quit type thing. And, uh, and so, yeah, we, we said we really want to do it. And so they committed, we committed. Um, they eventually, after two years of driving 600k round trips every weekend, wow. decided they'd had enough, <laughs> uh, took a package from the mine and moved us into Rockhampton where there was better training facilities and coaches. Um, with that package, they bought a new house, put us into new schools. They bought a barbecue chicken shop, uh, which the, we all as a family worked for seven days a week for... for um, seven years it was. Uh, we had it, and that shop pretty much paid for our sport and our travel wow. and our endeavours.
0: That's, that's such a crazy story. Like, and you hear it so often in the life of professional athletes. Off the, the parents, you know, doing the round trips, the Saturday trainings, the Thursday trainings, and and that's like that sacrifice on a pretty big level, right? Like six hundred kilometre round trips. Did that add pressure on you and Kerry when you were going through? you know, your junior career?
1: Well, as kids, uh, I'd say no because we just, like, couldn't wait for the week. It fun. (laughs) Wait for the car trip, you know. (laughs) I'm sure mum and dad had a very different uh, approach to that. But, um, no, we looked forward to those weekend trips. But as as I got older, I certainly appreciated what had been done, what was being done and what needed to be done. And um, I started to feel the pressure when money became an issue well, not an issue, but an element to at least even get mum and dad to races to watch us compete. You know, they weren't in Athens at the, my first Olympic Games, we simply couldn't afford it. They mm-hmm. were in Beijing, they were in London. Um, you know, I remember spending 10 grand to get them to Beijing and, and have the tickets like that's a huge amount of money mm-hmm. um, for an athlete. You know, I was working two jobs at that time to try and make ends meet. Mum and dad were still working in the shop to. You know, help in case we got stuck because my sister Carrie was also in the sport at that time, um, through till two thousand and nine. So both of us um, were working really hard on number of fronts. So
0: yeah, wow. And and I think that's something that maybe a lot of people don't really understand because all they see is the gold medals and they see the the success while the Olympics is going on. But but funding in sport, especially a lot of the Olympic sports, it's and I'm guessing back then especially a lot of that probably was self-funded, right? Or funded by families, working jobs.
1: Yeah, well, sport today is probably the best funded it's been. Obviously, you would Mm. hope that that is the case. Um, And every generation, you know, it's been better for the previous generation. And so, you know, when I first got a scholarship at the Australian Institute of Sport, which is why I moved down here to Adelaide, Mm. my scholarship gave me $100 a week, you know. and, And that doesn't go far when you've got, you know, fuel you know, all those costs of living, meal costs, all that sort of stuff. Granted, the IAS, um provided meals and accommodation. I didn't have to fork that out for that. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely, you wouldn't think so. A lot of people think that once you win an Olympic gold medal, you're kind of set for life, but it's not the case. Um, and even prize money in Olympic sports isn't great either. It's not, um, you, you don't do it for the money. <laughs> um, <laughs> and there are some sports, you know, even domestically in Australia that maybe... Um, create that imbalance of what what people think in terms of that because you know we've got big sporting codes like cricket golf football soccer where money is pretty pretty well um sorted in those disciplines so it's a tougher gig and you understand the government funded sports too it all gets dissipated or you know dispersed between a lot of different sports a lot of different staff members and a lot of athletes
0: yeah, wow. Yeah, it's, uh, and I remember speaking to a couple of other Olympians and it also depends on how successful your sport is, right? Like, yes. Um, so there's all those variables that go into it. And, and I think uh, going back more to like that love for the sport when you were a, a kid, at what sort of age did you know that oh, this, is, this is life and, and was there something like special about it? Like was there a feeling that you got from when you are on the bike or competing that still
1: sticks out? I, I always loved racing. No. That was the one thing that got me through a week of training was that I could race every Friday night. <laughs> training wasn't always fun. Um, training is the hard, slog stuff. Um, but I knew that if I did my training, I got to really enjoy racing at its, the best possible play, way that I could. Um, but I remember in uh, 2000 at the Junior World Championships, 2001, in Trexler Town, America, I won the Junior World title. And I thought to myself, maybe, stepping into the senior ranks, just maybe I could make something of the sport. Um, prior to that, I never really vocalised so much about going to the Olympics, about being an Olympian. That was always very much Kerry, and she was very vocal about it. She dreamed about it. She, you know, drew pictures about it. I was very quiet on that front. So, um, yeah. And then only three years later, I made my first Olympic team. So...
0: Wow. And that's amazing. So that was like the pivotal moment and and that's really interesting around like uh, having your sister have the dream and have that visualisation. Do do you think like that kind of, even though you didn't draw it out, do you think it played a role in kind of cementing your dream?
1: Absolutely. (laughs) There is nothing better than being competitive with a sibling. (laughs) Um, and we were intensely competitive. I mean, we did all sorts of sports growing up, even karate. So our fights weren't just verbal fights as kids; like we fully got into it, and um, we, <laughs> which was interesting. Um, but absolutely, you know. And, and I'm very much a visual learner, so I very I respond well to visual stimulus. So mm-hmm. seeing Carrie's pictures that she drew and hearing her talk about um, how special it would be to win an Olympic gold medal, go to the Olympic games or wear the green and gold. Um, You know, she really started to create those images for me when I was young.
0: That's amazing. It's amazing. I always love that origin story of how it, how it starts and, and what the, what the driver is behind getting it. And even as we go through this, we're going to chat about your new book and, Um, I want to dig like really deep into this because there's some amazing stories and lessons here. I've also seen you speak at an event previously and you've got an amazing keynote. It's still one of the best that I've seen just with the way that you go through your story. So dig into that. Starting from the top, Steve Waugh does the forward in this book. Tell us a little bit about your relationship with Steve and how that came about.
1: Yeah, so Steve was a mentor for the Olympic team in both Beijing and London. And at that time, the Australian Olympic Committee was allowing um, really great leaders and great sportsmen and women from different sports outside of Olympic campaigns to come in for us as athletes to be able to tap into them. Met Steve in 2008, didn't engage too much with him. I was like very much fan girl. And then 2012, uh, as you would read in the foreword, we cross paths on a daily basis without verbal communication. And I think both um, through my actions, his actions, my respect for him, um, we kind of had this rapport built out of absolutely no interaction verbally at all. Um, He was at the velodrome when I won my gold medal against Victoria Pendleton. And I really kind of got to know him after that in that he invited me along to his Steve War Foundation's mm. captain's ride, um, which is to raise money for children with rare diseases. And every year I go along because it's just, you know, an incredible human being to support you. You want to help good people do good things. And, um, and when the book idea came to mind, um, I was three years into retirement. No one really wanted to publish the, the book. And I asked steve i said do you have anyone that might be interested mm. and he put me in touch with jeff armstrong at Stoke Hill press who jumped at the the opportunity and the concept that reese Humphrey, who co-wrote this book and i had presented and then jeff goes well steve do you want to write the foreword and within a day steve had it back to him so um yeah and it blew my mind honestly when i read it i kind of had to put it down and just take a breath oh, i was man. very very thankful
0: Oh, it's awesome! That's so cool, and and it's it's amazing to hear that. Like even cross sports, having that opportunity to to tap into the the leadership of people like Steve. I know even in the book you you speak about. Um, there's a moment with John Eels chatting, chatting to him too, and just being in that environment. Like, can you think of a lesson that you learned from one of those say mentors that stands out?
1: Yeah, it's um. You know, they're they're elite people. They're elite minded, mm-hmm. and they're human beings and a lot of the times we can put people or sports people on pedestals and think they're different from us when they're not they've just um, been in a position and learned how to cope with certain environments to be successful and so these people are the best to be able to tap into for little nuggets of gold as I said in the book Mm -hmm. um, to be able to apply in my own circumstances and what better way to learn from other people than making the same mistakes that maybe they've made and already learnt from? You know, it's the whole point of progression and, you know, improving in a relentless manner mm. is by taking in and absorbing as much as possible from other people so that you don't make their mistakes and ultimately you can move yourself forward quicker than they did.
0: Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And like, I, I love emulation and finding like that person that's walked the path before, whatever, whatever that is. Like, did you have... A mentor like that where you were kind of slipstreaming what they were doing and kind of putting your
1: own, own flavor to it time in, in different areas and I, mm. I really tried to choose different people in the different elements of my world or my life at the time that i was going to need support and advice from uh, my sister kerry was a huge mentor mm. for me um, i learned so much from her she protected me in a lot of ways when i was younger Um, But ultimately she did everything first in this sport before I did and I came along. So she was fantastic. My manager, Francine, very successful businesswoman both internationally and domestically here in Australia, she was fantastic as well for being able to understand, you know, um, the way you can correlate sport lessons into business. Um, But in terms of sporting mentors, I've had some amazing mentors, Marjorie Jackson-Nelson, Marg Rolson, Rachel Sporn, Juliet Haslam, Roger Rashid, um, mm-hmm. Jan Sterling, you know, and it's not just um, athletes, but it's coaches as well, you know, JL, Justin Langer, Steve Waugh, John Eels. The list is quite impressive um, for the people that I've been able to tap into. And maybe that's why my list of results is so impressive mm-hmm. as well.
0: Yeah. And that, that's probably going to be my follow-up question. Like, Do you see
1: that? Would that
0: be like a piece of advice that you'd give to younger athletes? Is go and find your your support network. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, Mm. Um, it's really good because then you don't feel like you're so isolated in the experience Mm. you're going through. And when you can find like-minded people who are prepared to be open and honest and share experiences with you, um, you you almost feel more capable of approaching whatever challenge you're being faced with. Um, it, it's not that, you know, it's not been done before. It's just that you or I haven't done it before. And so, you know, swallowing that little bit of ego and that little bit of pride that, you know, you can't just do it all on your own. You need to be able to ask for help at different stages and recognize when that help is needed is a really important lesson and attribute that's required for success. I think. Yeah,
0: that's, that's awesome advice. Bit of goal there for sure. And, Going back, say, 2004, first Olympics, Athens, tell us a little bit about that experience and how that all went down.
1: I was 20 years of age, <laughs> uh, my first Olympic Games. And in our sport, it's also important to note that you can't compete internationally until the year you turn 19. Oh, um, wow. And so we have an age limit on when you can be recognised as a senior and compete at, in, you know, world championships and mm. Games. so really here I am my first um, complete year under my belt as a senior and lining up for Olympic games. Um, yeah, it was a quite an no, eye opener. Did a lot of um, psychological preparation um, because the one thing that can make you or break you at Olympic level is um, the environment. It's you can't recreate it. It's an abnormal environment, and so you can do all the physical work in the world and present with the best body um, in competition but if you don't have the engine to drive the body um, it's not going to correlate to performance and so we did a lot of um, psychological preparation for pressure um, for being as prepared as I possibly could for an environment I had no idea what it was going to be like Um, and yeah it was it was a pretty crazy experience Um, I remember lining up in the five hundred where I was world champion, which meant I had to start last and watch all the other individuals from the nations um, compete before me, post their times, and then try and go out and beat them. Like if you want a a mess up of your mind, (laughs) there's a perfect scenario. And to boot, the event only lasts for potentially 34 seconds. So all that preparation that you do, can you know come undone from one one little slip up somewhere in that five hundred meters? So um, I don't remember a lot of the race. Um, I remember certain points. Um, I remember walking up to the start line, feeling the adrenaline and the nerves. Um, my legs felt like concrete. Like I honestly felt like I wanted to, with my two hands, pick them up and move them myself. Um, I remember the half, the start. Uh, countdown because there was a fly buzzing around and, you know, it's almost like a movie scene. You're like 10 seconds out from the biggest moment of your life and then all of a sudden you're like... Spotting it away. (laughs) Um, Then I'm at a halfway point because the pitch of the crowd changed so I knew I was either close to or up Mm. on the time of my opponents and then I remember crossing the finish line and just desperate to see um, from the scoreboard directly in front of me where I had placed and uh, it was then I realised I'd, I'd not just um, won an Olympic record time but I won in a world record time um, and become mm-hmm. the first woman to break 34 seconds from a standing 500 metres time trial.
0: It's a decent Olympic debut. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: it is a decent debut and so, I can guarantee you that pressure came back in the next event um, and it <laughs> a little bit but I was so <laughs>
0: Oh, like what a I, I've got like sweat in the palms, like think about it, like, <laughs> like let alone you being in that, in that space, but you had the plan. There's two things that really stand out there. One is the concept of visualization. And I can't even fathom preparing for four years or at that point you've prepared for 15 years prior to it for this one moment. And then you have 34 seconds yeah for, for all of that work and that dream to get validated externally right yeah. um how do you prepare like you spoke about visualization and preparing for it mentally can you go into a few specifics around what that is and how you go about it
1: yeah well we have um a number of different senses and and as you said just in my vocalizing a, a, a scenario to you mm. sweaty palms and you might have um, saliva running, or you might have a dry mouth or you might not be able to focus or your heart rate might pick up, or you know, there's lots of different um, physical responses that come from verbal articulation. So the articulation of the story has to be very um, on point to get the reaction. Um, and often it's a non-fatiguing way of training yourself for something that's going to happen. Um, you know I'll give you an example. If I say don't think of pink elephants, what do you think of?
0: Pink elephants.
1: Pink <laughs> elephants. If I say think of a blue sky, what do you think of?
0: Yeah, blue sky.
1: blue sky. So it doesn't matter if you tell yourself to not do something or do something. It's whatever follows that that is the focus. So if I'm going into a race going don't stuff it up, don't stuff it up, don't stuff it up, what am I thinking of? <laughs> All the ways that I could possibly stuff it up. Whereas if I go into a race thinking, okay, there's going to be lots of people, lots of cameras, lots of flags, lots of colour, lots of noise, I'm going to have um, all these number of opponents but I'm going to have my coach there, I'm going to be in my green and gold colours, like I start getting very specific about where I want to focus my attention and by creating the ambient noise around me and getting myself calm with that, I can then start to narrow my focus in on what I need to focus on Mm. Through the visualization of having that articulately, you know, given to me, and so that's something that I learned early on. I'm very responsive to is visualization, and it's a very easy way to, to train oneself. It doesn't, you know, fatigue you in any capacity. You can do it at any time. Um, and you know, I used to sit there and think about the way I would celebrate a race when I'd won, you know, as well as how I would win the race. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, see, that's awesome, and it translates so much to golf too. Like it, the best players always say that they visualise their shots, they visualise how the rounds going to play out, and uh, I think it's it's a really critical skill that probably we don't you know use all that much, and that it has it's an quite, easy wide skill ranging. To
1: require, but it's also an easy skill to overlook because it seems easy, mm. um, but it's the dedication of time to that repetition that will give you confidence to perform in that manner because when you get to competition, you you for me, you lose the ability to hesitate. You have to think really um, quickly without that hesitation. Um, and the only way you can do that is to back in and buy into the preparation that you've done. It's mm. plain and simple.
0: So, so when that flies buzzing around, and that's obviously not part of the visualisation... <laughs>
1: No, no, it's not. <laughs> it happened right before the, the countdown buzzers went off. And so as soon as the countdown buzzers started to go off, my mind went straight into it's the straight back into
0: that. that
1: instead of the fly. So
0: That's yeah. perfect. And, yeah. and also going back to maybe a bit of goal setting, right? Like you had the visualisation, but you speak about the time, 34.1, you know, and that was a, a key number that you guys were preparing for. How does that factor into it and knowing that you've got that benchmark and then your confidence in being able to beat that benchmark in the day as well?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I had to have my my coach, Martin Barass, who believed it would take 34-1 to win in Athens. Um, Now, that was an Olympic record. So I knew going in that if I was going to win in the Olympic Games, my first Olympic Games, I was going to have to ride out of my skin because my PB at that time was 34-3. Um, So I had to find a minimum of two-tenths of a second to be in competition, let alone win. Um, So I think by having that pressure early on to understand what it was going to take meant that I wasn't surprised on competition day by how fast the time was going to be. Um, And if the time was too outlandish, which it it didn't end up being, it was bang on, um, but if 34-1 was too fast, then and the and the time to be would have been thirty four two I would have been like okay that's even better. <laughs> so uh, yeah, being honest and realistic with the goals is really important, mm. but also understanding when you need to have narrow focus and big picture um, focus as well. Um, I think athletes are really terrible at big picture stuff mm. uh, because there's so much that goes into making that up. All these little puzzle pieces is really difficult to keep track of. That's why you've got to have the right people in your team in your corner to help bring you back to that perspective when required, but a good athlete can really focus on that one puzzle piece and get that perfect, put that in the picture. Where's the next puzzle piece? How do I make this the perfect puzzle piece to attach to this one? And that's how that big picture is created.
0: Yeah, oh, well, wow. and you obviously, you smash that time. Uh, you get the world record and uh, and off you go. Like, that's probably another question as well with, with athletes. Like your PB prior to that, is 34.3, right? And then you smash, was it close to 0.8 of a second, which is pretty significant in that moment. How how do athletes step up on that big stage? Because most of the world records happen at the Olympic level or in the biggest moments.
1: Well, a lot of the times, like I said before, the Olympics will make you or break you. (laughs) It's a stage, you know, it really is an incredible stage. Nothing changes. It's the same sport, (laughs) Same event, same people you're competing against, but it's the Olympic Games, right? And uh, and I'm one of those people, you pin a number on me. or well, they call it white line fever. You pin a number on me and I'm rare to go. Um, like I, I, you always have an ability to lift. And the athletes who can lift are the ones that can absorb the nervous energy, absorb um, the adrenaline and not become overwhelmed by it and actually use it as an added source of fuel for performance. Um, I never want to feel the anxiety, the pressure, the stress, the expectation that I felt in my career. But I thrived on that while I was an athlete because that helped me lift on competition day. Yeah,
0: Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that makes sense. So so adrenaline plays a pretty key role uh, in the moment, huh? Mm.
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. And as soon as you lose that nervousness and that adrenaline, for me, was time to call it.
0: Yeah, wow. So you have Athens, uh, really successful day Olympics. What happens in 2007? 2008,
1: 2008. sorry, right? Yeah, yeah, 2008. 2008, um, seven months from the Games in a World Cup Kieran final in Los Angeles. I clipped the wheel of an opponent uh, with 200 metres to go in the final and, and obviously you know, crashed out of that that final. It wasn't a spectacular crash. To be honest, when I watch it back on video, I'm really disappointed because for the level of injuries that I got, I wanted, you know, something spectacular. I wanted bikes flying through the air, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> like um, an F1
0: crash. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> but what I got was, you know, the standard race for was a clip of the wheel and a, and a lean over on the banking. The, the trouble was the impact of, and the speed that I um, made contact with that banking or the, the, the floor of the velodrome. And I hit my right side of my head as well as the right side of my body. And the force with which I hit my head caused it to bounce back on the opposite side and that caused a compression fracture at my C2 level um, in my, my neck. And um, I was very lucky. I was two millimetres from a clean, clean, break, clean breakthrough. Um, and that ultimately resulted in hospitalisation in America Um, For a week, we um, convinced them to fly me home. First class.
0: (laughs) The silver lining.
1: (laughs) Yeah, uh, because I had to lay as flat as possible. Um, And ultimately, you know, was my dream still alive, my second Olympic Games in Beijing? And I I said to my coach before I left, I said, I'll still be right for the Games in Beijing. And I think he thought the morphine was talking because he kind of patted my hand down. He's like, just... We'll worry about that when we get home. And um, I was very fortunate when I got home. He had gathered the team. They had completely um, reassessed uh, where I was at, uh, what it was going to take to make Beijing, you know, because the goalposts, they had not moved. They weren't going to shift the start of the Olympic Games in Beijing to accommodate for my injury. So I had to now create a whole new path to still make that goal happen. So we went right back to the start and uh, it started with just simply being on the bike. Um, I got on 10 days after I fell. Uh, I progressed really well in a week. I went from doing one minute to half an hour. Um, Then I went into the pool. After the pool, I got back into the gym. Um, And then four and a half months from the games, I had to perform a fitness trial to prove I was going to be fit enough to fill the spot I'd qualified. And I went there, I wrote a personal best time by nearly half a second and, uh, and found myself in seven months swapping a, a neck brace for an Olympic silver medal at the Beijing Olympic Games. So it was a really profound year in that, one, the experience, but two, the things that I learnt both about myself and uh, about life.
0: Yeah, wow. Well, yeah. Like that's, that's arguably one of the most... Ridiculous stories in Australian sport. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you put that down, like, what, like you, you you just sort of punched through that. Like oh yeah, broke my neck, back on the bike ten days later. One silver. My <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, we're punching through that, but like like if we compare that to what medical advice would have been, I'm guessing it wasn't start riding a bike ten days after that type of injury.
1: No, no. <laughs> And uh, I was here that I probably had sports medical advice, um, and I was also I'm very stubborn, I'm very driven, I'm very stubborn, I'm very persistent, and I didn't like being told what I couldn't do, and I just got the shits one day. And I'm like, okay, stop telling me what I can't do. Tell me what I can do. What can I do? <laughs> <laughs> and so we kind of went down that path, and I just said to my coach, "Look, you've got the reins." Um, but I'm going this way as fast as I can. You're only allowed to pull on the reins when absolutely necessary. Um, So we had an accord around that. He knew I was going to push pretty hard and I knew that if he needed to put on the brakes, then I had to listen.
0: And you talk about the the what if uh, versus the what is. Can you explain that concept? I think it's really powerful.
1: Yeah, so... um, when I learnt that I was two millimetres from a clean break, I became quite struck by fear around the potential outcome had that two millimetres not have been there. And I started to talk in this context and discuss it with my coach, Martin Baras, around at that time as well. And I said, I don't know if I want to ride anymore because I, I, I could have been killed. I could have become a quadriplegic if the two millimetres weren't there. And um, And he said, you know, you're asking the right questions. You're just not using the right word, you know, you don't ask what if, ask what is. And mm-hmm. he explained to me the difference being, you know, what if is driven by our fears and our doubts and our emotional response to what we don't want to have happen, whereas what is is driven by tangible reality of the situation. So one is emotional, one is logical. Um, and for example, the of that situation, the what if was the two millimetres could have killed me and mm-hmm. the what is was the two millimetres saved my life. Now that's the same situation looked at from two very, very different perspectives. And once I learnt that and and comprehended that and understood it, I took on a what is mentality as a result of that um throughout that rehabilitation and it completely changed me as a person and me as an athlete.
0: Yeah, that's such a that perspective is super powerful in terms of and can be utilised in any single circumstance in life really, can't it? Like there's there's always that two sides to that one coin and I think that it just stands out so much when you talk about it in the book as um, a really cool philosophy, I think. Um, so as you're going through that road to Beijing, you have to qualify to get there and maybe now is a little segue into Kerry again and that relationship. Like... Tell us a little bit about the scenario there in terms of you qualifying and and the flip side of that qualification.
1: Yeah, so that uh, fitness trial, as I said, was um, four and a half months out from the games uh, for me. Um, I went to that fitness trial as the only one uh, contesting it, and if I passed, I went to Beijing, and if I didn't pass, the next in line would take my my, my place. Um, what many people don't know is that person would have been my sister Kerry, and so. The hard part about our career and our sport even up until that point was we didn't have equal opportunity to our male counterparts in terms of opportunity to participate at the Olympic Games with the numbers that we have today. We we now have equal quota of events and starters um, since the London Olympics in 2012, Um, but for Athens and for Beijing, we could take one sprinter. Now, Kerry and I were the best female sprinters in Australia for the better part of a decade at this time, so... Really, we were contesting against each other as well um, coming into the Olympic Games. Commonwealth Games was fine because we had more positions. We both could go. Uh, unfortunately, only one of us uh, could go in this time. And uh, I pushed so hard through my accident and recovery that ultimately I became the person or the reason that my sister didn't achieve her, her goal mm-hmm. of going to Olympic Games, um, which is tough.
0: And did that have, like, an impact on your relationship or just going through that career where you're so close but kind of competing for the one spot?
1: Yeah, it has to have have an impact. Yeah. You, know, you think about um, how difficult it must have been for Kerry to, to watch from the sideline. Mm. Um, and I think I perhaps didn't even appreciate it as much as I thought I did at the time um, until now I'm in a position where I have to watch other people compete in my sport that mm. I love, you know, so... Um, yeah, very, very difficult. Kerry retired in 2009. But the thing is she's such a wonderful person. She's just such a beautiful personality that um, she still is, you know, my biggest supporter. And, you know, what she does now, she, she cares for the elderly. She works at Alzheimer's Queensland. She, you know, writes um, training programs for young cyclists in Queensland. Um, she's just a phenomenal human being at base level. And she's one of these people that you just want all the good in the world to happen for. And, um, yeah, I, unfortunately she didn't get the chance to um, experience the Olympic Games. Yeah,
0: it's uh, yeah, it's such a phenomenal story and you hear it again so often where, you know, in individual sports or even whether it's business or whatever it is, that sort of leader or the, the person in it, you know, kind of, gets the, the kudos, right? But when you actually dig deeper and you speak to the, the people in that space, it's always such a team effort and you mentioned all the people that play a role in there and I think that just interesting to hear, you know, speak about it and all the, the roles that all the other people played. You know, you get the medal but it's yeah. it, it's not an individual medal, is it? No,
1: not the <laughs> long way. And, you know, the people that it takes to win a medal, you wouldn't know the names of. They don't make mm. the headlines. They don't win the medals. But the medals don't happen without those people. Mm. Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, it's for one. That's great. So then you you go to Beijing and 2008, you, you're at your second Olympics against all odds. Tell us what that experience is like compared to 2004.
1: Um, well, I only have one event. So the event that I win in the 500 in Athens is removed from the Olympic mm-hmm. program because BMX is brought in. And to make way for two medals for BMX, cycling had to lose two medals, which we found hard to do because, you know, the, the swimming calendar continually gets add, added to. But also there are a lot of events that only have one medal. So I've been in a position where I have one event like I had in Beijing and I've been in an event where I had three like I did in London. Um, so the 500 my pet event, the one that I would have loved to have had the chance to defend, uh, I no longer had all my eggs had to go into the basket of the sprint and um, ultimately I would meet Victoria Pendleton in the final in Beijing and I would get absolutely thrashed uh, <laughs> but win a pretty impressive silver, um, one to this day that I still hold very dear. That
0: is the most impressive silver and and that's probably a perfect segue into Victoria Pendleton. I know you, you get asked about this a lot. Uh, that that rivalry is one of the most iconic rivalries in sport you know that 2012 we were watching it with the family earlier and my, my son's like is that prince harry yeah. <laughs> in the, in the and I'm like, yeah it is it's like which teams are you going for and i'm like that, the other one yeah. <laughs> but tell us a little bit about that relationship with victoria and the rivalry and and then maybe we'll dig into the 2012 experience
1: yeah, well, the rivalry, um, you, you need some rivalries in sport. And going into London, you had every possible perfect concoction you could have for this role <laughs> You had Aussie versus Brit. You had home soil in the UK. You had a little bit of tension between the parties. Um, and the media just loved it. They lapped it up. And um, it added a lot of stress and a lot of... Um, Pressure as well. Um, at the same time though, I'm really happy to have been one half of this rivalry that brought an incredible spotlight to women's track sprinting, which it's never had before at this level of competition. Um, but yeah, it was it was a hard, hard knock rivalry every ten years, you know. And it was kind of nice because I needed her. I needed her being the benchmark that would make me come up to that level and try and surpass it. And then she would want to surpass it, and then I would want to surpass it. And ultimately we went tit for tat for for so long that we kind of um, in some ways rose above the rest that we were competing against. So, um, yeah, we we ended up meeting in that final in London for gold. Prince Harry was in the stands and uh, when I met him actually at the Invictus Games in 2018, I took the um, newspaper article from when I won here in Australia and it had a photo of Prince Harry like that. After I crossed the finish line, and I showed it to him, as a I mocked him a little bit. It was quite fun. He took it very well, actually. He uh, he just simply said, oh, "You can't prove that I wasn't in the velodrome. That that photo wasn't from that night. I could have been a different sport, you know." <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, it was really intense. We put a lot of work into that though, because we we knew the rivalry brought emotion, and so in the strategy, we had to really take out the emotion in order to be able to create this, the plan to ultimately win that gold medal. Um, And to do that, we broke Vicky down to statistical data and we used information that didn't bring emotion to help me see how I could ultimately beat her. And it was through that information that we were able to create a a strategy around the track stand, enforcing Victoria Pendleton to race from the front position, which was her weakest and least practiced position, and ultimately give me the best chance um, to, to ride at my strengths against her weaknesses. And uh, as you history would show, it turns out we, we were able to execute that track stand in the second race and uh, and bring bring home one of only seven gold medals at those games. So very, yeah, very yeah. special.
0: Yeah, because at that point, England were investing about $20 million in cycling, I think.
1: <laughs> A lot of money.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well done. And we'll, we'll link the YouTube video off that. That event because it's phenomenal watching just to, to see it go down so going specifically because for those who don't know it's best out of three so race one you tell us how race one plays out
1: so sprinting is a best of three matchup it's not a one-off race by the time you get to quarter semis and finals um which is why having plans and strategies is really important because if you do the same thing you become predictable predictability and in, in our sport um, or in our world means defeat. So um, I lost the first race by a thousandth of a second um, after physical uh, contact coming up the home straight. Um, it was deemed that that physical contact, whilst is allowed in our sport, happened over a line crossed by Victoria Pendleton that wasn't allowed. And so the Commissaires decided to reverse the result, deeming that had that collision not have happened, I would have had momentum to win um, mm. during I lost by one one thousandth of a second. Um, so the first race went to Victoria Pendleton, was relegated, was then given to me, which was met by booze by 6,000 <laughs> bombs in the stadium. And then we come out 20 minutes later for race two in which Victoria Pendleton leads. She's then, for, uh, sorry, um, I lead. She's then forced into the lead via a track stand for me. Um, she has to win this race to stay alive after the relegation of the first race. But unfortunately for her, it um, tactically worked perfectly for me. So we didn't end up needing the third and ultimately the decider.
0: That's, and it's pretty amazing. Like, Can you explain the track stand a little bit more for those that might well, not know what it is? Because is it's amazing.
1: It's basically just um, stopping and balancing in the stationary position. Um, sounds easy, <laughs> uh, but it's not. Like our track bike is a fixed-wheel bike, so you can't freewheel at, at all. If you pedal forward, you move forward. If you pedal backward, you move backwards. So where you position your foot is important where your position on the track is important because the velodromes are steeped at about 47 degrees. So it'd be really difficult um, at different parts of that track to perform it. Um, if you fall over, it's a restart and you must bleed out, but you already show your hand, so you can't use that skill again. If you touch the fence, same thing. And um, and ultimately I couldn't perform it as good as I did in training. But I did it, I executed it better than my opponent did on the day and that's all that mattered.
0: And and then you were off and you ended up winning that race by a pretty significant margin too. Like when you look at race one, which is a gray lead line, I think is the way that you describe it, and then race two, it's a couple of bike lengths nearly. (laughs)
1: Yeah, well, I mean that comes down to the execution, doesn't it? And um, in straight line speed, there was nothing that separated us physically. Mm. Um, But uh in that race it was the mind i think and the execution of the strategy that got me over the line in the way that i did
0: it's it's one of the best thought out strategies and plans and for those that again we'll go back to this you detail it over a chapter or two i think and it's pretty phenomenal to see how you mapped it out planned it executed it the 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 people you had in there and then actually pulling it off on the day (laughs) it's it's pretty incredible like yeah, from that whole concept of like planning and turning that into a reality. So amazing, amazing story. So then you've got you've got twenty twelve. We're now in your third Olympics. <laughs> where, where are we? So what's the tally at at Olympics number three? We've got
1: uh, five five medals. Five medals. Two gold, two bronze, one silver.
0: Three golds, and then you're gearing up for uh, number four. Yeah. In Rio, uh, tell us a little bit about that, and and especially around being the named as the flag bearer. for for the Olympics. yeah
1: that was really cool um you know there was a lot that happened between london and rio that many people weren't aware of at the time um you know i was going through divorce um a nine-year marriage 15-year relationship had come to an end uh which was really difficult you know it's a huge emotional uh, stressor and then to choose to physically hurt as a result of training for a fourth olympic campaign was really the concoction of a um Mm. an injury i suffered in 2015 and uh And leading into my last Olympics, I found that really tough. Um, When Kitty Chiller asked me to be the flag bearer, I was just unbelievably happy. I was very emotional. I was also shooting myself because I've never actually led in that capacity. Not many people have. Um, But for me that meant more than the fourth Olympic campaign because that kind of meant it was the summation of my career Um, being given that honour to carry the flag and so really in some ways that took pressure off the table to perform in Rio but at the same time it added it as well because now everyone knew who I was I didn't know who everyone was so you know all these eyes on on me was was definitely challenging as a leader you do have to answer for not just your own actions but actions of others um and yeah it was a different experience that's for sure one that I loved and would never change um but yeah leadership I I wasn't sure how to do it and mm-hmm. I, I thought I was gonna have to change how I interact with people or how I was a part of the team and and it was my dad who said no you don't have to change at all because that's the reason that given you this role mm-hmm. is because of how you have both led yourself and and your sport up until this point. So they want you to lead in, in the way that you lead, um, which is a really good bit of advice from my dad because then it, it made me just kind of be myself in that role. Um, but, yeah, yeah, it was a great experience.
0: Well, that's cool. So, so speaking about that a little bit and even now as you reflect on, say, that experience, do you have any leadership lessons or principles that stand out?
1: Um, it's It's, yeah, it's a... Interesting question, really, because I've never kind of followed a roadmap of how to be a leader. Um, I've kind of just, I guess, I have my standards and my values and the subsequent behaviours that underpin those of what I find acceptable and what I find unacceptable. Um, And I call things out. I don't like confrontation, but I will, you know, I'll talk to people one-on-one if something's bothering me. I don't do a a group situation because I just think that, kind of adds conflict when you don't want to do that. If I want to call someone out, I call someone out, but also I like to involve people as well. Um, And so the challenge for me in Rio was to be a leader of the team but also be a a member of the team as well Um, because I still had to contribute my performance to that team in Rio and um, ultimately did that with a bronze medal in the Kieran. And uh, I was really happy with that, like really happy. And people were surprised both in the media and back home that I was happy with a bronze medal because I think, uh, you know, a lot of people had this perception that the only level of success for me in Rio was going to be gold medals. Um, and that's just, you know, it, it, that's suffocating on anyone to to have that standard to live up to. Um, and no one knew of the personal challenges I was going through at the time. So it was really important that I had my own goals which I would have the ability to judge mm. what level of success was for me at those games not the perceived um level of success of others mm. um and 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 I say this because uh, that bronze medal is the first time any Australian athlete from any sport's been able to medal individually at four consecutive games so if that's a disappointment because it's not gold like I'll, I I will have words with people because I'm like <laughs> that that's turning up every year for 16 years and being on the podium I I, I not sure yeah. if you're judging me by these standards, what standards do you have in your life? Mm. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, so, um, yeah it, I think sometimes we forget how hard it is to be number one and the self-satisfaction of achieving a silver, a bronze, a final or indeed making the team. Mm,
0: yeah, that's it's so interesting, especially with the Olympic Games, you know, the, the success is externally always driven by the gold medal and... how how do athletes deal with that pressure and block out the noise because...
1: Well, they don't always. That's the thing. People forget we're human. Yeah. And we we feel uh, in the exact same capacity that that Mm. you Mm. like. And to, in any form, think that your hard work or your parents' hard work or your family or your friends or your sponsors or your team was not good enough, it's crushing.
0: Yeah. And... And like the external world's looking at it from the perspective of your last start, you won a gold medal, mm-hmm. right? But four that was four years ago. ago. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it's also too, we as Australians, we love sport yeah. uh, and we invest our pride and our emotion in our yeah. results of sportsmen and women because they represent us. You know, and I'm a sports fan as well. Don't forget, I love sport. So I totally get that. Um, but I've had the experience on the other side and, you um, and I've always loved wearing the green and gold representing Australia. There are times where it has been very challenging.
0: Yeah, wow. Like it's, and just like summarising that, that career arc, right? Like that's not a linear career story, is it, over that 16-year period? Like you're sort of going like this all the way, yeah, the way through. it. in
1: some ways that's why I think this book is, is surprising a lot of people because they, my story's been well covered. Um, and I'm very thankful for the connect between the Australian public and I that I've had in my time because of mm. um, how much my story has been shared and, and received in a positive way. Um, where, where this book is going to surprise people is it it will show more of those low moments that come between the high moments and that's what happens in life. We bounce along. It's turbulent. It's rough. It's not flat or anything like that. Flatline, you're dead. You know, it's just... <laughs> yeah. um, yeah, it's, this is a real honest uh, uh, account of the experiences that I've been through. And um, it's not your typical sports autobiography. It's not chronological order. It's not I was born here, I grew up here, I got involved in sport here. It's very pointed um, with a perspective of time to be able to look back and articulate those moments.
0: Mm. And and if you're looking back on the ups and downs and the moments of challenge and overcoming the adversity and the successes and the failures, like is, is there one moment there where you when you look back on it you're most proud of and is there a particular reason why of how you handled it or approached it stands out?
1: It's a it's hard. It's such a long career and so much happened in it like the silver in Beijing has to come up. The the gold in London has to come up. Um, you know, in some ways even my quarterfinal at the Delhi Commonwealth Games is special because I met a young Indian rider and um, she'd never only been on a bike for two months. She was a big fan. She asked me for my autograph before we even raced. Her coach came over and asked me to take it easy because she didn't have a clue what she was doing. And I had so much fun in enjoying my sport with her and, you know, making it close in the in the finish and, you know, the fans loved her. They loved that, you know, she kind of made a competition out of it and uh, I could see in her experience just the joy of that participation mm-hmm. in sport at that level. So that that's probably one that stands out.
0: That's a, yeah, that's an awesome moment. love it. And I'm just sort of... Looking at thinking back to some of those other moments and the people as well, like just speaking about your your coaches for for a second, you had three coaches that played a a pretty pivotal role, yeah. Um, and then and then one obviously with Gary at the end. Um, tell us a little bit about that and your involvement with also MND and what you're doing in that space.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I had three coaches in my time. I had Reg Tucker from Rockhampton mm-hmm. who was a real fundamentals coach, real old school, who taught me a lot of the ropes but also helped me understand the psychological side of sport and competition. Um, And then there's Martin Barras, who was my first coach at the Australian Institute of Sport when I moved to Adelaide um, back in 2003, who was very eccentric, eccentric, very emotionally, very high EQ um, and was very big on buy-in, you know, you back yourself, back your plan type thing, understand what it is you're trying to achieve. And then Gary, ultimately, I would work with for the final nine, eight or nine years of my career. Um, he was very stoic, very strong, very deliberate, and uh, and not the biggest communicator, but very passionate about what he did. Um, and unfortunately, he was diagnosed with motor neurone disease. Um, he had, was, was suffering those effects before we went to Rio. He had his diagnosis when we came home from Rio, and ultimately... Within the year, would lose his battle with M&D. So, mm. to to lose someone in a capacity of mentorship, of leadership, of you know, really, their teachers, coaches are teachers, um, it was really it, it hit ha- it hit hard. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I do encourage people to go out and, and buy the beanies. Beanie sick this mm-hmm. year. Beanie Six this year for the fight MND crew with Neil Danaher and Ian Davis mm. um, and his daughter Beck. They're doing a wonderful job. Um, they're only twenty dollars, and they're available at Coles and Bunnings. So um, that's their fundraiser this year because they can't do their big slide like they normally do due the restrictions. Oh. Um, so yeah, I do encourage people to get out and support that.
0: Yeah, it's an amazing cause, and and yeah, we'll we'll definitely put a link out to fight MND and definitely encouraging everyone out there to to get a beanie and also yeah, it's uh, while while like that was happening with Gary and how how did that impact? What, what sort of impact did that have on you like also with your cycling and your coach relationship but also wider than that, you know, as, as a friend and um, the relationship?
1: It's not nice to see anyone mm. um, essentially be entombed in their body and that's what happens with motor neuron disease. The The neurons that control the muscles or the signals from the brain to the muscles, they die and ultimately the body slowly starts to die whilst your mind is still sharp and capable. Um, and that's really tough for anyone to, to witness and I can imagine even tougher for Gary's family. Um, and, yeah, it, it's hard, it was hard to lose Gary um, but it was through his passing that I reconnected with the cycling family and met my now partner, Nick, and um, mm-hmm. and we have a lovely, uh, beautiful baby girl called Evelyn that we, we share and uh, just loved bits and, um, and we're very thankful. You know, I look back now and I, I wouldn't change anything, good, bad or indifferent, because... I wouldn't be where I am now as a result. And you might want to look back with hindsight and change all the bad things and have more good things, but then how do you know that the good things end up being good things? So, yeah.
0: yeah, I love that perspective again of sort of yeah the silver lining in all the situations, right?
1: Yeah. where
0: uh, it all it all leads into something else, something new, something different, and
1: yeah, yeah it's
0: like the, the Bruce Lee always, quote. Yeah,
1: that's the thing that's always hard. You can't always see where you're heading. Um, but when you get there, you realize, yeah.
0: Oh, that's amazing. Um, yeah, it's an amazing story. And so now you you mentioned Ev and Nick, so you're, you're a new mum. Yep. Well, and how's life been post-cycling?
1: Very slow. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> not in 34 second sprints and.
1: <laughs> uh, very slow. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I have loved that. Um. My daughter, Evelyn, has really slowed me down to just sit with her in the day. You know, she depends on me for everything. She depends on Nick for everything. And and that's where my focus has to be. And it's been really nice not to have anything else or anyone else to worry about. It honestly Mm. has been lovely.
0: Are there any, like, lessons from your cycling career that you've been able to transition over into parenthood?
1: Uh, not so much lessons, but just having <laughs> awareness on um, not bringing my self analytical, critiquing athlete mind into <laughs> and uh, also allowing my perfectionist nature of my home, who which normally is immaculate and currently looks like a bomb's hit it, uh, to let that go is a challenge. Um, but I'm getting better. It's only been three months. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love that I, I love that I'm like, yeah, I think that's one thing from parenthood is the uncontrollables really do stay uncontrollable
1: <laughs> and, and why, why waste your time and energy on things you can't impact the, the control yet <laughs> Exactly
0: 100%. right. No, well, congratulations on that, and and also in the book you write about some of the hobbies that you've been doing post cycling. Uh, I think you speak about I art and
1: all stuff in the book. Out
0: here. No, because we're only covering the top level. We're giving them the highlights here, <laughs> so they have to buy the book to get <laughs> the full story.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, lots of things, you know. But um, I've gone back to painting, and mm. um, that's been something that I've always loved is is art. Mm-hmm. And um, I've enjoyed some of that in my retirement, um, as well as yeah, I, I got to work as well, you know, with the mm-hmm. tour down under and, and different roles mm-hmm. that I have with with that. But also got into do a little bit of foster care, um, mm-hmm. which was um, really profound and impactful. Uh, again, perspective. The um, mm-hmm. offers the uh, from a perspective uh, point of view that that can give is pretty amazing, um, and. I think even some of the things I learnt from that have helped me be a better mum.
0: Mm. Oh, that's amazing. And, and golf, we'll, we'll segue into golf a little bit because when I last saw you at the GMA conference, I think you were, were well, you remember member? Is it at Glenelg or at the Grange? Grange? At the yeah. Grange, sorry. So, yeah, so you were You member at the Grange. When did you pick up golf and tell us a little bit about your relationship with uh, with the sport of golf?
1: I've always liked golf. I'm not good at it. No one um, is. <laughs> <laughs> Mill Mount has a golf course, you see, and so that was kind of like our little outing as a family. Often mm. to go down there and uh, and heckle each other as we got a score of twenty five for one hole. Um, and now, even though I'm still I zigzag across the courses, I, I, mm. I'm learning to get it straight. Um, but it's a great outlet, you know. It, it's it's a great opportunity to be outdoors to. Communicate and socialise with people and catch up, um, but it's terribly frustrating. Terribly frustrating. Um, yeah, let's just say that. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, you know, it's it's honestly. Yeah, you know, I got to be a little bit careful too because of my back injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, with swinging swinging a club but uh, it's just fun because it's so different for me um, from what I normally do and so yeah I hadn't done a lot of it obviously with being pregnant and a new mum and they the, the the team at the Grange Golf Club wanted to be able to set me up with a set of clubs but my belly kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger so yeah my, my swing position kept changing so um I'll go back there now that I'm starting to get back to my mm-hmm. normal body shape and uh, and get it sorted out. But, um, yeah, that's probably why I enjoy it.
0: That's awesome. So, so you're pretty early on then in the journey, like yeah, are yeah, beginner and that, that's awesome. And I think that's – it's a really – I'm really interested in this story because, like, with what we do at Future Golf, it's about getting people into the game of golf. And I'd love to know more about you, – you spoke a little bit about the frustrations of the sport and the, and the early beginnings. Like, what is it? As an elite athlete, that's kind of drawn you to it, or what, what's your favorite part of? Is it putting or driving the ball, or
1: just being uh, what, outdoors? To it is the fact that I'm not good, um, yeah. and, you, and I like to try and master things. Mm. Um, and what I like about it, uh, I actually prefer putting over driving um, because it's a little bit more a, a, a calm sort of approach to the shot. Um, that's how I see it, anyway. Um, mm-hmm. But I also just like engaging with people in a different environment that I'm used to. So, yeah, yeah,
0: no, that's I awesome. I'm probably
1: going to have to go soon because um, my partner's got home and it's storming. So.
0: No, 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 no worries. We'll, we'll start wrapping it up and just I think just in finishing that, that's probably uh, a pretty good note there, Anna. Like. I just wanted to, to finish up just by saying just a massive, massive thank you for being so generous with your time and going yeah. through those stories. We'll we'll definitely be putting links and to your new book, Anime Is now. Thank I don't know
1: if you. I got it right there,
0: there it is. And available at all good book resellers and retailers. And we'll also do the link to the Stoke Hill Press as well for people to grab a copy of that. So many lessons. You've touched on some of them in here. I know you're also speaking and Doing some of that, so we can link um, into your speaker's profile as well. Uh, we'll we'll put in a link to find MND and support that amazing cause. And just wanted to wish you all the best with everything that you're doing moving forward. And uh, hopefully, yeah, we can we can just share your story to a wider audience as well that um, may not be familiar with it, a golf related audience, and just to get the insight into what it takes, you know, to have that career with its ups, its downs, and everything in between. So uh,
1: thanks very much, and thanks for um. Being so kind with delaying and moving the around, <laughs> being available around different things. So, no, I appreciate that.
0: No, really, really appreciate it. Awesome. Well, thanks heaps for that, Anna.
1: Pleasure.